Hello, Alistair. Hey, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate your time. And uh, you, you can call me Al if you'd like. At what point do people normally make the Paul Simon joke? Uh, <laughs> um, it usually happens at, uh, at any time. Um, and my response is um, only if I can call you Betty. You can call me Betty and then you can be my long lost pal. <laughs> I guess that makes you my bodyguard then. Yeah, I think so. Hang on, I just got to grab my bass guitar. <laughs> right. Then you may call me Al. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever know that we redid that. Welcome to another week of Epic Rambles on Coming Up Next. I'm Alistair Marks. I'm your host. And what a special guest I have for you this week. There was some very sad news in Australia last week. One of the premier music channels, Channel V, closed its doors. And I was lucky enough to speak with one of the men who was at the forefront of Channel V. You may know him as the current host of The Bachelor. You may know his voice from the radio. You may know him from his own podcast, The Osher Gunsberg Podcast. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, Osher Gunsberg, and friends out there in podcast land. You can find more of my epic rambles over on iTunes or Stitcher under Coming Up Next. Hit the subscribe button, and if you're really digging what you're hearing, give us a five-star review and let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Podcast, on Facebook at Podcast, and on the worldwide interwebs at www.comingupnext.com. But that's enough from me. Now over to the interview. I mean, there's there's so many kind of points in in with your career. Uh, something that I was I was reading uh, on your Wikipedia page was um, was how you kind of got this in into music when you were really young. And one of the things I'm I'm really fascinated by is this idea of kind of nature versus nurture in a creative industry and. Uh, as someone who had their kind of creative passions and endeavors fostered, I'm talking about myself as a child, um, it really thrust me forward. And, I, and um, I'm, I'm curious to know if you had a similar kind of experience growing up. Um, yeah, absolutely. There, my um, uh, my mum uh, was particularly uh, passionate about me being able to have access to music teachers and and um, the the education side of things, and Dad was very much into taking all of us boys. I'm one of four um, to the strangest kind of concerts that you can ever imagine. Um, I, when I played with my parents' record collection, most people were listening to Zeppelin records or Beatles records or, or ABBA records. My dad had uh, Karen Stockhausen records and John Coltrane records. Uh, John Cage records. We had 433 on vinyl. Um, and so that was the kind of music that I, uh, to be honest, that's the kind of music that I first ever played with and, 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 and heard on record was these like really kind of eccentric avant-garde compositions, things like Stravinsky's Firebird and, and, and things like that. It was, that was where my music started. It wasn't in pop music. It mm. was in this kind of wild, complicated explorations of, of weird tonalities and timbres and all kinds of things. And it was brilliant. And I would often, at the time, I, I kind of looked a little down on pop music. I was like, well, that's really simple. It's just like three <laughs> bits. There's the first bit, the second bit, the first bit, the second bit, the third bit, back to the first bit, back to the second bit. Then we repeat the second bit until we fade away. 
and that's it, you know. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd grown up listening to these extraordinary soundscapes with rich, you know, rich melodic and chordal, uh, 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 you know, tapestries. But then also this really weird discordant. Uh, explore, experimentational stuff of uh, Stockhausen, all that weird Stockhausen stuff. And I don't know if you've heard much John Coltrane, but Melody mm. and John Coltrane weren't really good friends. And um, <laughs> his, you know, his complete exploration of um, modes and, 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 you know, moving quarter tones and, oh, it was wild, right? But this was all normal to me, right? And then, you know, this is obviously me looking back at it now with the educational ear that I got. But then I think when I was about nine, um, I discovered how to use my dad's FM radio. And that's when I heard Take 40 Australia for the first time. Oh, that wow. 19, 1983. And I couldn't quite believe what I heard when I heard, um, yeah, there was irregular pop music, but then when I heard Let's Go Crazy from Prince, I was like, what the fuck is that? Mm. And like that was one of, without a doubt, I was nine years old. I remember exactly where I was. I was playing in, in mum's car in the driveway. This is what we did before the internet and iPads. <laughs> we would just go out, can I go play in the car? Don't turn the key. All right, mum. <laughs> that was it. That's what you did. Pretend Don't that you were driving. You know, that mm. was it. It was our castle for the day. I was out playing in mum's car listening to... Um, listening to Let's Go Crazy from Prince, and I just could not believe what I was hearing. Mm. Um, yeah, and Thriller came out around that time as well. So Thriller was absolutely impossible to escape. So I hit pop music with this knowledge and kind of background of appreciating very complicated production. And I didn't obviously, I didn't know what I was appreciating at the time, but the stuff I was drawn to was the stuff that made me feel emotionally like this other music had, things I got goosebumps from, mm. right? Um, and I always chased that and, and mum, like I said, mum was very kind and, and, and worked very hard to make sure that I had access to music teachers and bought me a guitar and let me learn how to play and sent me off to music school and eventually bought me a, a, a double bass and, you know, I learned how to play double bass and all that kind of stuff. And dad on, for his part would take us to, I mean, we went and saw uh, Stephen Reich, the extraordinarily uh, extraordinary minimalist. We saw Stephen Reich live, mm, wow. uh, which was wild. Um, we saw six pianos. We saw the clapping song. We saw, yeah, it was great. I was like fourteen, I think, at the time. Dad was right into it. It was great. Mm, so I... that kind of was what ultimately then was well served as the foundation of what I eventually did in. Um, uh, uh, commercial radio and then onto Channel V, rest its rest its soul. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, I, I, I came into all of that with this, you know, having studied orchestral scoring, having studied, you know, and written some terrible shit, but I knew how to read. <laughs> I knew, you know, I knew about movements of symphonies and movements of of concertos, and I knew about you know, different eras of composition and I knew about different instrumentations and I, I had recorded a bunch by then and I'd put out albums and I'd put out records. And so I approached the radio and the television from a, 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 a thankfully a very educated side. It wasn't just, that guy's got a nice haircut and I can remember that song. It was like, holy shit, that guy's playing a 57 Fender, the, the Paisley one. There's only 255 of those. Wow. You know, there's mm. probably more. 
think there was 2,500 of them. Anyway. <laughs> Details. Details. Um, how how important do you think it is as a as a creative or as 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 a professional to have that foundation and that really rich understanding um, of your craft? I think at the same time, it's incredibly important to know who built the road that you now walk on, as it is incredibly important to then forget everything. Mm. Um. I remember, I won't say their name because uh, they're a very nice person, but <laughs> when we did Australian Idol, we used to do, one of the big deals was um, doing a, a photo shoot for Rolling Stone magazine. And one of the young men piped up and said, what do we need to be on Rolling Stone magazine for? What is it? Why do we want to do that? I'm like, and this is, a, magazines were a thing that were a very big deal. If a magazine rated your band, you were, you were in. Mm. They were the curators at the time. Um, it's so, so important to know who, who's been there before and why what you're doing is, is important. Um, you know, it's, I, think it's, I think it's imperative that you know who's done what before you so you can build on what they did and not just repeat what they've done, but also learn and then iterate from their techniques and learn and iterate from, because that's, that's the only reason humans are now alive in this world where we are, is we've iterated on ideas that came before us. If we had to start from scratch every time we got born, okay, here's how you find water, here's how you find food, here's how you make shelter, here's blah, 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 blah. Like you and I are talking on Skype right now, which is probably the collective thought process of, of 250,000 years of human yeah. thinking. <laughs> that has created all of the technology for you and me. You know, when you when you add it all up between all the microprocessors and, and telephone communications and all the stuff that mm. you are using to speak to each other right now, we're we're talking millennia of thinking power has gone into this. Now, if we had to start every time, we'd be fucked. So I think it's so important to learn. I mean, like if you were going to start photography, if you get yourself a nice DSLR camera, which are fairly cheap now, and you go, wow, I'm a photographer now, put it on Aperture Priority, and wow, look, everything's out of focus <laughs> in the background. Go and learn a Nice some... shallow depth of field. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Bam. Filter, 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 posted. Oh, yeah. Um, good for you. But l if you want to make the leap, go and look at Ansel Adams. Go and study her Brits. Mm. Go and study Annie Leibovitz. Go and see why they did what they did and what made them great and use that as your jumping off point. Don't just use your camera's aperture priority setting as your jumping off point because all you're going to do then is start 150 years back. Mm. It's, it's really important to learn that and then realize at the same time, I guess not forget everything, but I think it's super important then to realize when you are um, paying an homage to that person or when you are uh, mimicking them or when you are just replicating them. Mm. There's a difference. There's a difference to all that. I'm giving you really long answers today. I'm sorry. No, no, that's that's cool, man. This uh, this podcast is renowned for being a ramble factory and that's the oh, way okay. I like it. <laughs> cool, man. And on that, I actually um, attribute you know, uh, the style of this podcast to as, as an homage to people like Pete Holmes and um, Mark Maron with the podcast that they've put out into the world. Hagwood's Holmesy. Oh, Peace. man. But enough about him. Back enough to you. Enough about Petey Holmes. <laughs> Old PDH. Yeah. Um, 
So you do, do you remember the first time that you picked up an instrument and that you played it and that you you felt like this is this is an industry and this is a career that I'd really like to um, make a fist of? Um, I don't. It wasn't a particular instrument. There was instruments around the house, so there was always musical instruments around my home. My father's a fantastic musician. Was really into baroque music and had a spinet in her house, which is a single manual harpsichord. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a wild sounding thing. Um, but yeah, we had it in our house. And, um, so as kids, we would at night times, dad would play and we would be, you know, lulled to sleep by the sound of this exotic kind of plucked stringed instrument. And, uh, there was various percussive things and whistles and flutes around it. Um, as far as wanting to make a go of it, it wasn't a particular instrument. It was, um, I was in a play when I was in grade three and I stood on stage at the um, Our Lady of the Rosary Kenmore School Hall and I had a couple of lines in this play and um, I stood up there and the whole school was there and I got a laugh <laughs> and I was looking at, I was, I was generally a, a terrified kid, terrified of everything. Terrified of strangers, terrified of people, terrified of... I was just a very, very jumpy kid. Mm. But when I stood on stage, I felt such extraordinary peace and such extraordinary calm because I was in control of the situation. Mm. And I got a laugh. I made these few hundred people react and that was it. I was done. Whether it was an instrument or something else, I knew I wanted more of that. Mm. And that's what drove it. Mm. I got goosies uh, hearing you tell that story because I can very well relate to that. I think it's that when you're in that, because, you know, I was, I feel like I was neurotic at times as a, as a kid uh, and, and certainly bashful. I, I, I was a drama kid, but I was always, you know, scared of myself. Um, but I think something about stepping out on stage that draws you into that really pure kind of presence where you're so in the moment that you don't have time to think about yourself anymore. You're just thinking about what you're there to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that really kind of, that's, that, that was definitely a defining sort of thing for me. Obviously I, you don't have an awareness of that as a, um, as a construct when you're, that old but i guess on reflection that's what it was for me yeah yeah i get it i get it yeah um and so you you, you worked your way through high school and you were in a few bands you're in a barbershop quartet <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was fun um and then you came out of school and you um continued this education by getting a gig as a roadie yeah yeah i was 17 years old and the day that um, I – I don't know what part of the, the country you're in, but they're all probably obsolete by now. But basically the score you get out of high school that dictates what part of university you get to get into, mm. um, uh, that score I got five less points than I needed to get into the university course I wanted to get into, mm. which is no good. So – I, um, on that day, I was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> and um, so what happened that day, I got a call from my, my friend, Shane, uh, 
who called me up and said, hey, my cousin is looking for someone to do lights for her band. Um, can you go and help out? I said, sure. So for 40 bucks a night, often a 10 or 13 hour shift, I would go and lug a light show in and out of a small van and in and out of a smelly nightclub. And I was 17, working in nightclubs, doing light shows, four, five, 45 minute sets a night. Um, I, I like to say that uh, I got two hernias and hearing damage, but I also learned how nightclubs worked. Yeah, wow. And I also learned what it was to be in a band and the dynamics and the economics of being in a band and how um, you know promotion worked and how door guarantees worked and how tickets worked and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and then I, uh, yeah, so I did that did that for a couple of years actually. That's awesome. Really? Yeah. And then I kind of remembered that, no, actually, no, I think I want to be on stage rather than <laughs> be on stage. I was very good at it. And I almost, almost went pro. But um, I got myself a pyro license so I could blow stuff up. And I learned how to control intelligent lights and all kinds of things. I learned how to rig big rigs. But I was like, no, 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 this is not what I do. This isn't it. And then I went and um, God bless her, my old school counselor, she found me. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm being a roadie. And she's like, what the, what are you doing that for? And she said, listen, there's this contemporary music course. This is after I'd finished school, mind you. Mm. She said, there's this contemporary music course. So I want you to go try out for it. And I said, okay. So I went and auditioned for this place. And wouldn't you know what I got in? There was a couple of thousand people auditioned. And I got in as a bass player and singer. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that's right. I feel better under the lights, not running them. And um, and that was it. And so I was, I was back on stage. It's quite incredible. I remember um, after I came out of film school, going and being in uh, in the crew of um, on on certain jobs, you know, just as a runner or in, you know in the art department, and always having that kind of burning desire to either be, you know, the person running the ship or being the guy in front of the camera. It kind of it it never kind of leaves you once you've got that sort of motivation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, though, I've met enough people who work behind the scenes to know that I ultimately would not have fit in. Mm. I'm not behind the scenes. I guess work people on crews, on uh, certainly film crews and certainly staging crews for live music. I've met enough people on those gigs to know that the frustrated musicians among them make shit workmates yeah right (laughs) or the frustrated actors and directors amongst them are terrible crew members Mm. it's the ones who are like i don't know i love rigging lights Mm. this is all i want to do i never want to be on camera don't want to direct all i want to do is this um and that's what makes great you know and you know like some of those people are craftsmen Mm. absolutely some of the directors' assistants I work with, some of those women are just freaking incredible. Some of the directors are, you know, I remember meeting a script editor once. She was, uh, um, yeah, a script editor. The woman that, um, the script supervisor, sorry, the woman that stands on set and makes sure that all the words get read and, you know, in consistent uh, form. Mm. And she was so bloody good at her job. And I asked her how long she'd been doing it for. And she was, you know, she was a total actor type. And what did you ever act? She goes, oh, God, no. No, 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 never, 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 never. <laughs> did you go to drama school? No. Like this is all she wanted to do. Or maybe she did go to drama school. I can't remember. But anyway, so yeah, I think that's that's the, that's the distinction. You know, if you 
I was lucky in that I got hauled out. But if you want to be on stage or if you want to direct, you better get out there and give it as much as you bloody can. Mm. So by the time you do finally go, that's it, I'm done. You know you gave it everything and you've exhausted that, you know, or you've seen what you're up against. And I think that was ultimately for me when I got out of music. I saw what I was up against. I saw what it was going to take. And I just didn't, I didn't have the ability to write the songs. I couldn't, I could play very well, but I couldn't write the songs, man. Mm. I didn't have it and I knew it and I knew it. And it took me a long, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to realize that I didn't have what I needed. And it's not something that I could have found um, or learned. It just wasn't there. And years later, doing Australian Idol, the singing show, you you know, I would see, would see, I don't know, twenty percent of people who were just there for a kick, and would see seventy nine and point five percent of people who were, or no, seventy percent of people who were freaking good. Mm. And then we'd see 9% of people who were really, really good, but they weren't excellent. Mm. And it was the 1% that were the excellent ones. And I was in the really, really good. But, and I remember seeing those people like, oh. Now, I had the stage presence. Thankfully, I've been able to use that for the rest of my career. I had the stage presence and the ability to communicate, but I just didn't have, I couldn't, I couldn't write the songs. So I couldn't. If you can't write songs, you're a hired gun. Yeah, that's you're you're in a you're in a van. You know, you come off one tour and then go on another because you're not going into the studio to record an album. You're just going back out there to to go work for someone else. Mm. It's a mercenary, and that's 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 what you do. Mm. Didn't want to do that. Yeah, I uh, I I I totally hear what you're saying, um, and I think it's really important for. For me, certainly, to know that I give my all to to what I want to do, because you know, you only get one crack at this particular life, um, and if there's something more at the end of the road, that's not for us to know now or or whenever that may come around. Um, but I guess to just kind of underline what you're saying, I I am totally in agreement that I want to know that I've really given my all to doing what I want to do in this world and, and making sure that that's a reality. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that's all you can, that's all you can really, cause you're the only one, uh, my manager in uh, LA, he has this great line. He says, you are the only one that knows how hard you worked to make your dreams come true. Mm. It's a fucking great line. That is a great line. Um, because it takes you then take responsibility, yeah. and it's super important. You can't blame the fact that your career didn't go well because the music industry folded. You know, yeah. Plenty of plenty of people have made great music careers since the music industry folded up. <laughs> have something else. They've clearly got something going on. Mm. Um, so only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. Mm. And like I said, it broke my heart, Al. It broke my heart that I couldn't do it, but coming to acceptance of that was ultimately a very freeing thing. Mm, it's the uh, it's the resistance where there's suffering, really. Yeah. Once you accept what anything, I think, really in life, you you find that freedom and um, especially in creative kind of expression. Yeah. And it, 
And on that note, at, at the age of 20, you jumped into uh, a radio career. Yeah, I did. Um, here's, here's where it comes down to it. I was uh, unemployed. Well, I was, I was in a band, in an originals band in Brisbane, which meant I was unemployed. Um, <laughs> we were gigging a lot, but it was, you know, fuck all money and touring mm. and we were using all the money we made on tour to pay for the tour. It was not a money-making venture. Shitload of fun. Um, don't get me wrong. The other guys in the band could write songs. It's just I couldn't. Anyway, um, anyway, so I was unemployed. I'm like, this is, I'm going crazy here. I've got to get off the dole. So I basically wrote letters to every radio station and record company in, in Brisbane. Because at the time, there were still satellite record companies in Brisbane. And I just said, listen, this is me. This is what I do. I'll do anything. All I know is, you know, I'm, I'll be great. Just get me in there and I'll do it. I've got a, I've got something and I don't know what it is, but, you know, let me. And they, I hand wrote them. They were big on A3 pieces of paper. They were giant envelopes. One of the guys that worked at one of the nightclubs that I was a roadie at when I was 17, who was the bar manager there that used to open the place up for me when I showed up, was now working in promotions at B105. Hmm. JJ was his name. And he's like, I remember that bloke. Got me in for an interview. I got the job. Wow. And, and that's, uh, you know, if there's one thing that is, like even just today, I got a call from Los Angeles about a job from a guy that I met 10 years ago. Huh. The only thing we have in this world is it's, it's not just what you know, it's who knows what you know. Yeah. All right? So you can be the greatest engineer. You can be the greatest coder that ever lived, self-taught, out of control. But if none of those mad entrepreneurs in uh, Silicon Beach or Silicon Valley or uh, Atlanta or wherever, none of those people know that you can code, you'll never write the next Angry Birds. But if you are constantly out there making friends, talking to people, communicating with people, saying, yeah, this is great, this is great. When they go for someone, oh, we need someone to code. Oh, let's get Barry. Remember that guy? Oh, I remember that guy. He was great. He's a great coder, Barry. Yeah, great coder. That's the only way. That's the only way. Mm. The only reason I got this job that I've got right now at Hit 105 in Brisbane is because of people that I met at B105 in 1995. And I, they are still in the industry. I've kept in touch with them. And I called them up. You know, and I went and saw them and I talked to them about what I wanted to do in 2016. Like, all we've got is our word and what we can do for our word. And that's it. And so when I showed up at B105 in 1994, I was like, this is it. I'm in the door. And I just worked as hard as I fucking could. I don't think I had many days off in about four, four and a half years. Mm. But I think when you're, when you're doing something that you love, and you're really passionate about it. You you never have a day off in inverted commas. I think your your work becomes more of a lifestyle than a uh, than a um, than a job. Well, if you can do that, you're the luckiest human ever. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's the dream for me for sure. Yeah, if you can align your passion with your purpose, you're the luckiest person that lived. Mm. You really are. 
and i think on on the point that you were that you were making there you know staying open to whatever kind of comes your way is kind of i guess in a sense a butterfly effect kind of mentality what you what you did uh three years earlier affected what happened three years later and similarly 20 years later um when you you know when you were looking at um, what you wanted to do in 2016 and staying open and being prepared for those opportunities and those moments, I think is the kind of paramount thing in those situations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and learning to recognize those is also super important and, and keeping your, the more you look for opportunities, the more opportunities you'll see, Mm. the more you look for, Oh, nothing's working. Everything's fucked the more shit will be fucked. Sorry to swear, that's but okay. that's it. Like the more you look and go how much everything is not working for you, that's all you will see. Mm. The more you look for how everything is working for you, the more things will work for you. Mm. The more exits you look for, the easier it is to get out of a room. The more places you look for that you can't get out of a room, you'll feel more stifled. I think that's another, maybe that's another way to put it. Um, if you look, yeah, if you walk into a room and all you look at is... Um, how dark it is and how um, cramped it is and how frightening it is, you'll feel claustrophobic. If you walk into a room and all you look at is like where the doors and the windows and the ways to get out are, all you'll feel is like, well, if I need to get out, I can get out that way, that way, that way, that way, that way, that way, that way. It's all in how you look at it. It's all in through your own lens. And again, you're the only one in control of that. No one else can be in control of that lens. Mm, And no one else knows what focal length you set your lens at. Boom, look at that. Ow, dropping bomb. There you go, like it's hot. And so you kind of navigate this career through radio and you wind up at the now deceased Channel V uh, on air as Andrew G. Yeah, I was Andrew G at SAFM. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and so you, you kind of... I've had um, both Molly Meldrum and Dylan Lewis uh, on on the show. Oh, good for you! And it's kind of it's there's there's a nice kind of um, symbiosis between the three of you, I think, where you've each kind of had this amazing part in the evolution of the Australian music scene and how it's been accessed by the public. How how critical and important it was Channel V at that time in you know, picking up from where something like recovery left off? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, we're recording this two days after I found out Channel V come to an end mm. and it ends tomorrow. Uh, so when you listen back to this, that's when you'll know. <laughs> um, how important was Channel V picking up in the Australian music industry where a show like Recovery left off? Um Channel V was run by a man, when I got there, the man who hired me, was the man that took Triple J, which was then a very Sydney-centric, no, you can't come and sit with us because you don't know the bands that we know, (laughs) kind of youth brand, youth station, and took it national. So Barry Chapman spearheaded taking Triple J national and after he had built the most powerful radio station that's ever existed in Australia, a station called 2SM, which was in the 70s and 80s. It's an AM station in Sydney, and it was absolutely monstrous. When you look at their ratings numbers, you're like, I can't even believe someone had this much market share. Hmm. He was 26 when he was the general manager of 2SM. So this absolute legend of 
knowing his market, knowing his industry, knowing what worked with an audience, he was given the task of taking this, making this incredible youth brand. And, um, and we just, all, mate, all we did was follow him. And so if it had that recovery, Triple J kind of feel, that's why. Because Barry did it, you know. Mm. It was built by the guy that took Triple J National. It was built by the same guy. And, and we kind of relished in that. And I guess what we did is we now had the visual ability to showcase Australian music. Um, we had 24 hours a day to fill. And, you know, un- until we filled up our video library, it was easy to get a band in to play. So that's pretty much the size of it. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like from, uh, from the inside of that working um, at, at, at kind of the ground level and seeing this thing explode and seeing the reception that it received? Um, look, at the time... I didn't realize what was happening. Just everything was exponentially bigger than it was the day before. All right? The audiences, the, the level of artists we were getting, the experiences we were having on air, how much we were allowed to push the envelope. We just were given this mandate to just be cheeky, be cutting edge, be a little naughty. It was the most incredible, incredible time in television because we had, I think we had about, well, we had a bit of runway, you know, in the startup world. We had a bit of runway of cash to just kind of go for a while and see what worked. So we tried everything. And in that, we managed to find this incredible sweet spot where the people who are making the shows, the behind the scenes people, the directors, the producers, the camera people, the audio people, staging, lighting, and the people on camera were as big a music fan as the people that were camping out to come and see us. So we were fans talking to fans and it was glorious Mm. because we weren't talking down, we weren't talking up, we were talking to. And every other television experience at that point had been one way. We are giving this to you. That's it. You just sit there and take it. Mm. We were like, no, you talk to us. We put internet chat live for the first time. We did SMS polling live for the first time in this country. We would take a phone call live and then just play the music video absolutely live. We put the television we, we tried as hard as we can to make the screen that separated us be a permeable barrier. And we made as, as much as we, and when you look, when I look back on the Channel V experience, that was the absolute core of what we did was to break down that wall and go to the audience, show the audience and be the audience. And, and, and like when I say show the audience, I mean like represent the audience on screen, show them that we are, we see them, we recognize them. Because that's all anybody wants to do. And, and somehow we just hit this magic formula that just resonated with people. And we had this incredible couple of years, man. Holy moly. Mm. We, we managed to just be there 
at this right time and be the right age. All of us were the right age. We were, you know, of the right demographic and, you know, ethnic makeup. We were able to have this extraordinary, authentic conversation with people from all over the country. And it was a, it was a beautiful thing, man. What were, what were some of the more audacious things that you guys did uh, to, to kind of keep in line with that? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> That's a good answer. I think just going live and trusting that our audience would come with us when we went on wild tangents. Um, I think that was the number one thing because every other live TV thing is so extraordinarily planned. Mm. Um, we just turned the cameras on and went. Uh, there was this whole time where half the year we spent on the back of a bus um, with a satellite dish and three PD-150s, which is a, like a first-generation three-chip um, video camera, mm. uh, the first prosumer kind of Sony model. Yeah, I remember um, uh, using those at film school. Yeah, right. So we just basically plugged them into a satellite dish and went. <laughs> That's what we did. We wow. Got, and we were live every afternoon from whoop, whoop, nowhere. Yeah. Right? And we would bring bands out to these fields on the outside of these small towns and we'd set up at 11 in the morning. We're like, shit, we hope some people turn up. And by 4 o'clock, there's 2,000 kids there. And some of them had driven 400 Ks to be there. And, you know, things like that. There's no fucking way now any network would do that. Mm. Still, no one would take that risk. Let's just hope someone shows up. Let's drive there. Let's drive 500 Ks west, set it up, take these bands, fly them in, and just hopes and people show it. And they did. It was amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. It was amazing that we that we were able to do things like that. Requires a lot um, of chutzpah. Shows like, well, we just trusted that our audience would be there. Mm. We showed them the respect of showing up. Like we're gonna drag all this stuff out there. We're gonna set it all up and we're gonna bring it to you. And they were like, Well, okay, if you're gonna do that, we'll come. It was amazing. Mm. It's amazing. Um, to be able to connect with an audience on that level. Uh, and again, authentic, having those authentic conversations with people um, was so, 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 so important. I think uh, one of the wackier things that we did was a show called Room 208, which was uh, born off the back of a crazy fucking party that we once had in Jabba's room, Room 208, <laughs> um, at a conference we had one time. There's footage of that night, apparently. And I, I expect it shall surface at some point this week. Yeah. Um, and that was just this incredible Saturday night dance-off where people could win a 1000 bucks for being the best dancer, being voted by the, you know, SMS voting public at home. You know, it was, it was wild, man. Um, some of the – I think, like, I've been thinking about it a lot this last week and, and you know, the one that really stands out, and I've, I've talked about this because it, it happened and it was my favourite bit. Um, we had Cypress Hill on set and we had a studio that Barry built, which was uh, Barry and the team built this three-walled studio, which was open to the street. Um, so anyone could just kind of walk by. But when bigger bands were there, we put a bit of a barrier up so the punters didn't run into the studio. Mm. And we had Cypress Hill on set. I'm there on set. I'm interviewing Cypress Hill. I'm interviewing um, Be Real and, and, and uh, Rentog. And we're talking about, you know, getting high and getting the munchies and, you know, what it's like being on the road and da-da-da-da and... And we hear this, and we look to the left, and there's like two or three hundred fans there. And B-Real goes, Dave? And over the barrier, 
jumps this skinny bloke with long hair. It's Dave Lombardo, the drummer from Slayer. Huh. And they're playing down to the Horton Pavilion, about 100 metres to our right that night. And they go, yeah, do you guys know each other? And they went, yeah, we went to high school together. That's so <laughs> I looked at audio and audio threw me a microphone. I grabbed a microphone. I handed it to Dave Lombardo, sat him down. And we spent the next 10 minutes talking about how Dave Lombardo and Be Real used to jam playing metal in 1982, like playing full slap, like thrash metal with rap over the top of it in high school in their lunch breaks. Now, there's no way that that moment, it was not planned. There's no way that that moment could have happened if we didn't have this incredibly well-oiled team of camera people, directors, lighting people, audio people, producers, everyone ready to absorb this chaotic moment and make the absolute most out of it. You know, figure out a way to shoot it, cross-shoot it, figure out a way to, to cut between the, the people, me knowing where to sit the guy so we could get the, the clear shot of him and then directing the interview to be like, what's the most unique thing about this situation? How do we get these guys talking about how they know each other, these bands that are completely different? Mm. It was fantastic. I think we even took a call, right? And then we went, we took a call from someone, all right? And then someone out in the country calls up and we have them on air live. That could never have happened in any other medium, man. It was amazing. It is amazing. And it's, and it's kind of mind-blowing and heartbreaking in a sense that there's nothing kind of like that around at the moment and that we live in such a padded kind of, economy that people wouldn't be willing to take those risks anymore like you say well people certainly are willing to take those risks man but they're willing to take them they're taking them just in a different format and that's why you know that's why channel v ultimately ended is because there was no youtube broadband speeds weren't anywhere near what they are today they were mm. a hundredth of what they are today there was no way for that kind of content to exist unless it was on television but now that kind of content can happen and just happens on the on, on broadband, on the internet, on, on internet video. Yeah, that's and it true. will continue and, and that's where it goes now. And that's great. And the viewers are even bigger because you don't have to be a subscriber to a terrestrial Australian network. <laughs> you can watch it from all over the world. Yeah. And so those risks are still being taken and way higher risks are still being taken. Um they're just being taken in a different format. Just packaged in a different way. I guess that's what we call now going viral. Well, it's going. It's on a different platform. It's not really packaged a different way. It's just on a different platform. It's still television, mm. but it's just on a different platform now. It's just on, on someone's phone. And they're sitting on the bus watching their favorite band do that on mm. their phone rather than tuning in every afternoon to see it because that was the only place you could get it. Yeah, very true. And how did you kind of make a departure from, uh, from Channel V? Uh, how did I leave? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've talked a bit about this. I got a bit, I got a bit sick, but I didn't really do anything about it, and I just kind of got, you know, uh, I got pretty afraid, and I, uh, I just didn't leave the house much. Uh, the stuff I talked about before when I was a little kid kind of just got worse, mm. and so I got, I got super afraid of strangers, and um, I just ended up just not really wanting to leave the house much. Um, and uh, when I, I was living overseas and I was reporting back for Channel V from overseas and I was trying to make that work and they tried really, really hard but ultimately, uh, you know, Channel V went, they went leaps and bounds to try and get me 
to stay, but ultimately I was just a bit too weirded out and I wasn't very well and, and so I, I, I bailed. Um, I got better, but uh, mm. it was a bit of a weird, it just kind of petered out, to be honest. It was a bit strange, mm. a bit strange how it ended, yeah. And was it, was it long after that that you were then given um, the opportunity with Australian Idol? No, 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 that happened before that. that Idol happened that. in 2003. Oh, yeah. sorry, let me... So uh, we, did, we did both. We did Idol and Jim and I did Idol and V concurrently for, for years. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that they were yeah, yeah, that's at three the same years. time. Yeah, we're busy boys. Wow, so that, that certainly would have taken its toll, I imagine, in terms of the, the workload and yeah, the exposure. And I, think, I, think, I think it ended with, with me bowing out of V. Um, and it was, it was a lot of money that I, that I bowed out of. Mm. But... I was just too freaked out and I couldn't, uh, you know, I think about it now. You know, you'd say, you'd be crazy to walk away from that. Well, I was. <laughs> That's the only <laughs> way to describe it. Yeah. Don't worry. I got better. I met some good doctors and I got better. Mm. But it's, uh, it, it was, it was, that was the first kind of really big um, manifestation of where my mental health started to really impact my, uh, my work. That's when I, uh, when I turned turned away from uh, the incredible opportunity that Channel V was. Yeah, mm. I was reading. Um, I was reading a story on your podcast website about a trip to Israel that you took, where you um, you met quite a holy man in Tel Aviv. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were um, you became quite enamoured in this idea of how much your name affects uh, your, yep. your kind of quality of life. That's right. And you'd kind of been given all these nicknames throughout your career, and you'd never yeah. and, and nothing had ever kind of. Uh, it, it well, was always... I'd never been known. I'd never been known by my real name. Mm. Um. And so yeah, so there was a. It's a longer story, but um, the short short version is that I met a man who told me that if I changed my name, I'd change my life. I did, and it did. That's about it. <laughs> and you named yourself after an Israeli war commander photographer that you'd met? Uh, yeah. yeah he, was a, he was a cameraman, yeah. Osher is Hebrew for happiness. Mm. Are, you, are you Jewish? Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, yeah. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish from the waist up. Right. My, yeah, dad's, uh, uh, dad, dad's Jewish. Right. So, right genes, wrong chromosomes. Yeah, right. <laughs> do, you, do you identify at all? In, in that sort of sector? Um, I was, I went to a Catholic school when I was a kid, uh, but it never really, um, never really resonated with me. Mm. Um, I really wasn't into the, the guilt thing. Uh, <laughs> I hear It wasn't, wasn't really my bag. I think, you know, the only thing that really resonated with me was just treat other people how you want to be treated. Mm. That's it. And if you expect other people to treat you how they want to be treated, shit should work out all right. It's like, that sounds all right. It's a pretty good rule. Let's do that. Everything else was a bit weird for me. Um, so I kind of got quite disillusioned with that quite young. I was about 11, I think. Yeah, wow. Um, but when I met my ex-wife and I, I, I got to Israel, it felt like I was coming home. Mm. It really did. It felt very, very powerful. It felt... Yeah, if anything, I resonated with the um, uh, the spiritual side of things a lot, a lot more. I mean, I'm not really uh, the thing that um, by the spiritual side of things. I mean, the thing that people who are alive now in this dimension, 
in this reality that we call Earth mm. and how they treat each other, not the thing, the imaginary thing that happens after we die yeah. or the imaginary, <laughs> you know, man in the clouds who helps people win football games yeah. or, you know, the, the imaginary bad place that happens after we die. No, I, I, I really resonated with the way that the spirituality manifested between people in the community. And that's what really, that's all I could go for. All right. And that's what really, really hit me. And kind of after that in Los Angeles, which is a great place to do it, um, <laughs> I, started, I started studying uh, Kabbalah for a while, which is the mystical version of Judaism, mm. the kind of the, the version that came before the Torah and things like that, I think. Um, it's, it's kind of, but it's, it's, it just talks about light and dark. And I, I, kind, of, I kind of dug that because it's just an energy thing. And, and that's what exists for me in this, in this realm that you and I inhabit. Mm. Is, is is energy between people and it really spoke to me i don't i don't you know i took what i needed from it and uh you know thank you very much um and, and so yeah I, I did resonate very much with the with the spiritual side and, and the community side of, of things and the way that as a community they're very very much traditionally they're very much about nurturing the community and and always having a seat at the table for someone who's hungry and um you know that it's it, it's a, it's a mitzvah to do good things for other people and you know mitzvah is a, is a to be what's the word um like, like it's a it's a blade yeah it's a good deed like it's a but it's a blessing on you mm. like if you want a blessing on you do something good for other people mm. all right and that it's it's that's seen what being as, a well yeah but like that's but that's built into their culture. Yeah. All right? You don't have to ask people, stop being an asshole, just fucking give to charity. Like it's, <laughs> in, it's in their culture. It's built yeah. into their culture. And that's what I really resonated with is that, wow, just like just by existing in their tradition, they look after each other and they're kind to each other and they're good to each other and they're good to others. And I, I kind of resonated with that. But also, you know, it's an incredibly politically difficult place to be. Yes. It's an extraordinarily complicated situation that does not possibly have the chance of being explained in this conversation. <laughs> All I could say is that there's a lot of sides to that story. Um, I don't know enough about any of those sides to make a call. But I do know that if you want to be angry at me uh, about it, I'd prefer it if you took the time to go over there and go and have a look and go and see it with your own eyes and then we can come back and talk. Mm. Because there's something about standing at the, 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 the Rafa Kossing at, um, at, uh, at Ashkelon. I haven't been uh, there. Uh, it's, it's the, no, in, uh, what's the word? It's the, right, the, the crossing right down there. And you look and like there's the wall around the Gaza Strip. Mm. There it is right there and I stood at the crossing I stood at the border crossing and I watched you know how the people that were coming and going I looked at them I looked at how they were being treated and I was like how, fuck, how the fuck do you live in there you know and it, it's a it, it's a very very difficult 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 place mm. uh, and it's, it's very very complicated to possibly try and and, and comprehend just from the idea of these people are right, those people are wrong, those people should stay, those people should go. Mm. It, it, no, it is not that simple. It is never going to be that simple. And 
unfortunately, um, it's it's being quite fucked over by self-interested politicians who are really kind of destroying, in my opinion, a lot of work that has been done by both sides uh, to try and make things better, which sucks, which sucks. But I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation where it's, you know, they're not, they're not, they're, they're setting their cameras to aperture mode, you know? And oh, they're, mate, they're, they don't even want to look ahead of the end of their term of office. Yeah. That's it. As far as they're concerned, the, the universe ends when they don't get elected again. Yeah. They don't see that there's children who have to fucking live somewhere mm. and people who need meals and water and safety mm. that aren't their friends. Yeah. And have never lived like them and don't have access to healthcare like they do. And like just basic shit like that. Um, but that, I guess, you know, that goes for any, any governmental situation and certainly happens in this country. Yeah. Um, certainly happens in this country. Mm. That got a bit weird. Sorry. No, no, no need to apologize. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's to, at the, at the risk of sounding like I am simplifying what is an incredibly complex, difficult and fairly horrific situation, whichever side of the fence you sit on, it's, it's, it's kind of fear, fear peddling and it's not, there's no love in the situation and that's kind of sounding a bit hippie-ish, I know, um, but you know, there's, there's, there's decisions to be made from kind of a loving state or a, or a fear-based state. Yeah. And you only have to look at Trump at the moment. God help us all. Yeah. Um, the only thing indulging in fear and speculation of fear is more fear. There's no mm. safety. There is no safety. Mm. None at all. No. That's unfortunate, but it's true. It is true. But you had quite a loving experience while you were in Israel and you spoke to this um, I did. shamanic yeah. man. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you came back to... Did you come back to Australia or were you living overseas at that time? Uh, I can't quite remember. I'm still drinking, man. So. Mm. I came back to Australia when Idol was in session, which is about three months of the year. The rest of the time I was in LA. Right. So I, I spent a lot of time in Israel while I was uh, married to my ex-wife. Yeah. Mm. Um, it was great. I had a great time. It's a fascinating part of the world, the Middle East. It is. Real. Good food. Uh, oh, great hummus. Oh, man. Ruins, ruins hummus forever. Yep. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you go back there. Unless you go back there. Um, and I'm really fascinated by this changing of the name and how that kind of pulled you out of a, a dark time in your life and how it really let you take ownership over your life quite literally and symbolically. Oh, right. Yeah. So I toyed around with changing my name for a couple of years. I had Osher up my sleeve and then, um, it was 2012 and I just got divorced and I was very, very sad. Uh, it was understandable because I don't recommend anyone gets divorced. It's terrible. Mm. Um, 
I had this big divorce beard. I was living in my divorced cave. I was didn't want to see the light, didn't want to see anybody. And my buddy Jackson says, come on, G, come up to the mountains. Come and get some fresh air in here. And um, it was my birthday. He took me up on my 38th birthday. And um, we went up the mountain in Bale. And I've, I, um, I was like, that day, I was like, it's my birthday. Fuck it. And I, you know, I don't want to say I was born again, but I was like, this is the day. I'm deciding that sad, broken, busted, old, um, living, you know, a very different life with very different values me has served me, but I'm done. Mm. Now he is new, sober, trying as hard as I can to live a life with very different values and trying as hard as I can not to cause harm as I go forward. This me has arrived. And putting a name on that helped me as it did everybody else. Um, and that's the easiest way that I can explain it. Mm. It's quite amazing, you know, to really take responsibility for yourself and to also know that every day, I suppose, is a new opportunity to like you kind of this idea that every day you're dying to yourself every day you die to your past and every new day is a new moment to be who you want to be and what you want to be i was once blessed 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 to be asked to MC an event with the dalai lama his holiness the dalai lama wow uh which is freaking incredible and he said in his beautiful giggling lilting English (laughs) what always makes me laugh about Western people is on New Year's Day one day of the year you decide this is going to be different I'm going to do this differently I'm going to make this and this and this better about myself because my life doesn't need that and that and that he says you realize it's just today and there's 364 other ones you can do that every day and I went, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So every day is New Year's Day if you want it to be. Mm, he definitely knew a thing or two. Oh, he knows a thing or two. He's, a, he's an interesting cat. Mm, he, is, he is definitely an interesting cat. And you got, uh, I, I was listening to a podcast you did, an interview you did on um, humans of Twitter where you kind of spoke about this second chance that you got through um, being through the, getting the role on, um, on The Bachelor. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, didn't, I suppose I didn't have that much of a frame of reference for what kind of happened between Channel V and The Bachelor, but um, it's quite inspiring. It was quite an inspiring story to hear that kind of part of the journey and, and how, you, how much gratitude you had for that moment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the key to life, I find, isn't how you handle the peaks. It's how you handle the time between the peaks. And after not handling them very well at all, I was given a chance to learn how to handle them a little better and managed to stay kind of positive enough through one of the valleys that when the next peak came along, I knew what to do with it. Um, and I'm very, very lucky that it did come along. 
Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, I think that's the, the important thing to remember about it all. Is like right now, things are good. I've got a TV job. I've got a radio job. I'm engaged. Live by the beach. Got a new puppy. <laughs> things are good. Nothing's permanent. Mm. This this too will pass. What am I going to do when it's not like this? And I don't think about that like a doomsday. Oh, it's all going to end tomorrow. But it's it's, it's very much like a well, I've got to think about what you know. How am I going to deal with the next time that things aren't great? Mm. Which is inevitable because I work in the bloody media. <laughs> so if I wanted a stable job, I'd work in I don't know construction or something like i'd go build bloody housing estates if i wanted to be you know something that worked well mm. instead i've gone for this thing that gives me a feeling that i had when i was eight years old for god's sake yep that's what we're all chasing that pink dragon well i don't know i don't chase a dragon anymore man no <laughs> um yeah i think it's i think you know there's there's an awesome uh rum dust quote that i've that i've said on here a few times which is i am the ever-present sky and the clouds are but a kind of passing momentary thing and i think you know people are really sort of when they're in those slumps they find uh, i certainly know that i do that you f you feel like it's it's uh it's never going to end and then when you're in this joyous kind of mode it's like you never want it to end um and it's kind of never living it's 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 almost always living with a resistance to the inevitability that that may pass whereas i think like you say if you can kind of if you can have things in place and and and, and know that these are just moments in time you, you're going to live a much happier and a much freer kind of existence yeah they really are nothing the the sooner that you no, let me just put this to me the sooner that I came to the acceptance that we live in a world of impermanence and to cling to permanence is futility and to be and, and a sure path to pain, a sure path to agony when things that are by their very nature impermanent, everything decays on this earth, to cling to the false idea that it's always going to be the same is, a, is agony. To accept that everything will change no matter what, it may change for the better. It may change worse. You may change around it. But to accept that everything is changing constantly is a far more peaceful way to be because then when things do change, you're like, oh, it's just going to change. I mean, and that's the thing we talked about, you know, drumming up fear in the populace. What are they drumming up fear of? They're drumming up fear of the new. They're drumming up fear of the unknown. What do we want it to be like? We want it to be back to the old days. Make it great again. Make it safe again. <laughs> I want it to be like it was. It's never like it was. Never. As my friend Ruben says, these are the good old days. Yeah. Right now. These are the days of our lives. Well, no. no. <laughs> these are the good old days. Right now is the good old days. Mm. Yeah. And I think if we had a time machine, we'd probably see that the, the, the days that we're yearning for weren't even like we remember them because I, I, I think we romanticize um, oh, absolutely. when we Why live not? in fear. 100%. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Osha, for, for doing this with me. I really, I really appreciate your time and I'm, um, I'm, I'm really saddened uh, by the news of Channel V's <laughs> shutting down. Um, but I it, do nothing's feel... Nothing's permanent, Mel. Nothing's <laughs> permanent. You know, what have we just been talking about for the last hour? Nothing is permanent. The only permanent thing is impermanence. 
that's that is very apt and i feel like that's a great way to uh to kind of sign off on the show there is a final question that i ask all of my guests and that is what makes you silly silly how however you uh interpret that what makes me silly Um, generally, a lack of sleep. <laughs> lack of sleep makes me silly. Makes me do silly things. No, no, it doesn't make me do silly things. I do silly things when my brain hasn't slept enough. That's what happens. What are, what are, what are some of the sillier things that you've done when you've uh, had a lack of sleep? I've uh, hunted two Uber drivers and made my brother and sister-in-law turn this house upside down looking for my wallet today. It was in my other other pants. <laughs> Not my other pants, the other other pants. Yeah, I know, I know the ones you're talking about. Yeah, silly. Very silly. Very silly. Thank you so much, Osha. Thanks, man.